City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. If you have been around any children uh, for any length of time, uh, my children, your children, somebody else's children, it doesn't matter, uh, you have probably heard or yourself asked this question, why did you do that? I'm not just picking on my kids when I say this. I think anybody who has been around kids has asked the question, why did you do that? Why did you throw the dodgeball in the house? What what made you think that that was a really good idea? What made you pick up the dodgeball and say, this would look really good against the china cabinet. I should put it there very quickly. Why would you do that? Why? And I think as parents, we ask this question, but as soon as we ask it of our children, we get the universal response to the question. Why did you do that? Uh, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do at the time. You know, I had the ball. The cabinet looked like a pretty good place to put it rapidly. So I put the ball at the cabinet rapidly. I don't know. I don't know why I did what I did. Kids, kids do that, right? That's part of the nature of kids. They just do things. They act on instinct. They don't think through why they do what they do. But, but here's something funny about you and I, as adults. If I were to ask you the same question about a given action in your life, hey, why did you go to that restaurant for lunch? What would your response be? I don't know, felt like it. Wanted tacos. I don't know. Wings sounded good. We just did it. Wanted to, right? It's funny because even as old as we are, as grown as we are, no matter what age we are, if we're asked to examine the reasons behind our actions, what's your motivation to do this? Most of the time, our response is the same as a child's. Now, we can cloak it a little bit better. Instead of shrugging our shoulders and saying, we'll normally say, well, because because I wanted to. Because I felt like it. Because I could. Fine. But that's just an adult version of of answering the question, I don't know. You see, most of us, Christian, not a Christian, religious, irreligious, no matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of belief, no matter what our cultural heritage is, most of us live an unexamined life. We don't think about what we do. We just do stuff. We fill our calendar with things to do, and then we go do them, and then we go to bed at night. Why did you do all those things tonight? Oh, just what I did. I don't really think about it. And we live lives where we don't think through our motivations. What's interesting is when it comes to Christianity, this is really significant for us because God cares significantly more about our motivations than He does our actions. See, for us, we often like to focus on our external actions. I did something nice. I avoided doing something wrong. I did these things. But rarely do we stop, take a moment, and look back and examine why we do the things that we do. We're 
coming to the end of 1 Corinthians. In fact, this is our last week. I was thinking about it before that uh, we started this series the week after uh, Hurricane Irma hit. Because we were supposed to start it before Hurricane Irma hit, but, you know, thanks Irma. We've been here for a long time, and so we're going to finish up this week. And as we do, Paul is going to give a list of goodbyes, a list of sort of final statements in the books. But there's one thing that's going to tie it all together. The thing that ties this last chapter of Corinthians together that that sort of makes it all make sense is this idea of motivation, and specifically the way that we ought to be motivated in all of our actions by love. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have you stand up, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 16 out loud. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what St. Paul says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, uh, with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come as he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. They, They have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The church of Asia sends you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. City Church, this is the Word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So on its face, this seems like a bit of a strange passage. It's sort of the house cleaning, cleaning you do. Sort of the, when you say goodbye, right? There's, a, there's an old joke about, you know, the, the goodbyes that you have to say to good friends at your house, and the goodbyes that you say to them on your porch. 
and the goodbyes you say to them hanging out the window of their car, right? When you have really good friends, goodbyes tend to stretch out. Oh, oh, next week when you come over, would you bring that thing that I left over at your house? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, you have some of my Tupperware. Oh, I think I have some of your Tupperware. And, you know, you sort of go on about it. And it seems to be sort of this extended goodbye. And in many ways, that's what Paul is doing here. It's an extended goodbye. It's Paul saying, okay, I wrote all of this stuff, and it's been a lot of stuff, and it's been some really serious stuff, but here's some other stuff as I'm leaving. This is the the front porch talk of Paul to the church of Corinth. But throughout it, he's weaving a theme. He's weaving this theme that's been the theme of the whole book, which is this. Let everything you do be done in love. And he sort of gives them three sets of instructions, three big ideas about the way that love motivating us affects us and changes us. He talks about the way that love changes the way that we approach money. The way that it changes the way that we approach our reputation and the way that it changes the way we approach leadership. He begins by talking about this idea of this collection that he's making. Now, he's not talking about regular church giving. He's talking about a collection that he is setting up from the churches in Greece and Macedonia and Asia to take back to the people of Jerusalem. There had been a famine in Jerusalem. And so many of the early Christians that had started the first church there in Jerusalem uh, were starting, uh, were suffering. And so Paul had decided that he was going to take a collection from the Gentiles and give it to those people there in Jerusalem. And he says, look, the reason you should be doing this is not because you ought to. It's not because you can buy God's favor. The reason you should be generous and taking care of these people is because of the way love changes you. You see, oftentimes, especially in these three areas, this idea of, of wealth, of reputation and of the way that we serve and lead others, our hearts fall into a trap. And the trap that we so easily fall into is this. I think that I can use these things to get God's favor. One of the easiest ways to see this is with money. Paul says that our giving should be should be planned. Everybody uh, set this aside on the first day of the week, and it should be proportional. Paul doesn't just talk to the rich people. We've talked about this divide in Corinth before as we've gone through the book. There were a lot of rich people in Corinth, and there were a lot of poor people in Corinth. There wasn't a ton of middle-class people in the church in Corinth. And Paul doesn't say, hey, you rich people need to give to the people of Jerusalem. Those of you with expendable income, y'all help. Now he says everybody should give proportionally. Not the same, but according to the way God has taken care of you. And when we begin to talk about money in the church, it necessarily gets awkward, right? Why? Well, one of the reasons is here in St. Pete, locally, uh, if you look at uh, the survey data from the American... um, American Community Survey. It's not about the census people. They ask a lot of questions every year to folks. And one of the questions they ask is, if you don't go to church, why don't you go to church? You know what the response of 54% of people in St. Petersburg on why they don't attend church is? Because I feel like every time I go to church, people stick out their hand and ask me for money. It's the number one reason. It's the most common reason people don't attend church. And yet, 
it is something that the Bible talks about. And so some people get uncomfortable when we get, begin to talk about the way that God calls us to be generous with what He has given us. We get uncomfortable because we just don't like the idea of churches talking about that. What's interesting is, even in this passage, Paul talks about the flip side of that, right? Does he say, when I get to town, I'm going to take your money, and then trust me, I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. No. What does he say? When I get to town, I'm going to let people from your church take your money and take it up to Jerusalem. Paul is cutting off at the knees one of the things that makes us most uncomfortable about giving our money to other people. How are they going to use it? Right? And Paul sets a model for us here at City Church, for the church as a whole, of, no, we need to be transparent, thoughtful about the way that we handle money. But the real reason that it gets uncomfortable is because we have a complicated relationship to our wallets. There are two things in our modern lives that we don't leave the house without, right? Our wallet and our phone. Until ten years ago, it was just one thing. It was just your wallet. The idea of having your phone with you at all times, even ten years ago, was a little bit... Okay, I guess so. Sure. And for some of us, we think that we can buy God's favor. Most of you look at me and go, whoa, well, that's not me. I don't think that I can buy God's favor. Okay. Probably not, but have you ever given to a church, to a charity, to a nonprofit and thought, well, God's going to bless me now. Look how generous I was with other people. Have you ever talked to someone else about money, maybe a close friend, somebody that you share a lot with, and they told you that they didn't they didn't give to someone else, they didn't give to the church, they didn't give to charity, they sort of held on to all their money, and you thought, huh, glad I'm not like them. When you do that, what's really going on is your heart is showing how you love your money more than anything else. You see, it's sneaky in that way. We think, if I just if I just attain this level of financial freedom, then I can give. But did Paul say that? No, Paul said everybody should give proportionally. What he says was, love makes us generous. And not just generous with our cash, with our homes. Generosity isn't limited to our wallets. It's also our homes. It's also our stuff. It's also our food. The way that love transforms you and I is not just in the way that we are generous with others and giving to others with our money. It transforms the ways that we interact with everyone else around us. We no longer have that shelf of, well, you can have the LaCroix on that shelf, but... Not the good LaCroix. You, it's not... It's you, Okay, yeah, that's right. There's no such thing as a good LaCroix. Who am I kidding, right? LaCroix is like drinking sparkling water while somebody yells out the name of a fruit in another room. No, it's, it's not saying, look, you can, have, you can have those chips, but don't touch the salt and vinegar ones. Yeah, you can borrow my beater car, but my nice car, I'm going to need that. 
No, it's a generosity that cuts down to everything that we have. It cuts down to our heart of saying that none of this is actually ours. Your car isn't yours. Your house isn't yours. Your food isn't yours. All of it has been given to you by Jesus. And Paul says, look, if you have been transformed by love, one of the results is that it will create a generosity that stretches not just to your wallet, but to your car keys, to your cabinets, to everything that you have. Paul moves on and begins to talk about his travel plans, as well as the travel plans uh, of some of his friends. He talks about himself, talks about Timothy, and he talks about Apollos. And in many ways, he's calling back to the very beginning of the book. If you've been with us since last fall, when we started this long process of walking through 1 Corinthians, you remember that one of the first problems that the church had was that they were fighting over who was the better preacher. Well, I like Paul. Well, I like Paul. He's funnier. Well, I like, I like Jesus because I'm spiritual. And the church, church had this thing where they were, they were going through and saying, well, I, I like this guy better than that guy. And Paul begins to lay out his travel plans. And he says, look, I'm going to stay in Ephesus through the winter. And then I'm going to come to you when I get there. Now, on the one hand, why would Paul even go? I mean, if you, if you walk through this letter with us, him and the Corinthians... They're not best friends. They've had struggles. Things have been tough for him and the Corinthians. If I was Paul, I would probably go, you know what, I'll, uh, I'll, just, uh, I'll just send you a letter. Or, I want to stop by for a minute, but not too long, right? Yeah. You all know how this is, like when you go somewhere that you don't want to be, right? What are you doing when you go somewhere you don't want to be? You are looking for reasons not to be there. So, oh, Look at the time. I gotta go. <laughs> you, you know this. Those of you who are introverts know this well, right? You are getting somewhere and counting down the minutes where you don't have to be there anymore. I understand that. And Paul looks at this, and if I was Paul, I would say, you know what? I'm not gonna go there. Or if I do go there, I'm gonna stop by real quick. And then he talks about how Timothy is coming. Now, Timothy is young. Timothy is much younger than Paul. And if the church had kind of ate up Paul and Apollos and Peter, how are they going to do when he sends the young guy? The, the guy that's fresh out of college. The guy that just got his certification. And yet Paul says, no, Timothy's coming, and you should treat him well. And Apollos? Yeah, Apollos isn't coming right now. Which is really interesting. Because what did the church think about Apollos? They loved him. They wanted him back. Why can't we have Apollos more often? Justin, why don't you go out of town more often so that other guy can preach? We like that guy. Bring him in. And it says, Apollos is not going. So what's the threat? Paul is going to go and stay for a while. He's sending Timothy, who has never been, and Apollos isn't going to come right now. Why does Paul give us these things? And, and furthermore, why did God decide that it was important for us as Christians in St. Petersburg in the 21st century to know about these plans? Good question. Thank you for asking. In each one of these cases, Paul, Timothy, and Apollos are giving something up to share their faith with others. Paul is giving up staying 
where he would want to stay for longer. Timothy is giving up staying in a place where it is comfortable. Apollos is giving up going somewhere where he is well-beloved and made a great name for himself. In each one of these cases, what's happening is, all three of these men, Paul, Timothy, Apollos, are giving up what they could cash in on. They're giving up their egos in order to serve the church and to serve others. Which reminds us very clearly of this question. Are you willing to set aside your ego to share with those who God has called you to share with? It's easy for us to reflexively answer yes. I know I like to reflexively answer yes. But then when the time comes, do we take our shots? Or do we hesitate? Do we freeze? If you're anything like me, you probably freeze a lot. Probably, you know what? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna invite them right now because if they like me, if I don't say something like, you know, if if, if they like me, it'll be easy easier for me to invite them to church later. If I'm really nice to them. It'll be easier for me to tell them about Jesus later. So, be cool. I'm not going to do that right now. And then not right now becomes, well, not this week. Not this week becomes, well, later. Someday. Maybe. And the shop's gone. See, every one of them, Paul, Apollos, and Timothy, were willing to set aside their egos, set aside their reputation in order to make Jesus' name great. That's hard, because if we're honest with ourselves, very rarely has love transformed us in that way. Paul finishes uh, by telling us about um, the leaders of the church at Corinth who he has commended, Stephanas. It's interesting what he says. He doesn't say that these are the people that are the most gifted people in your church, follow them. These are the people that are the most powerful people in their church. They're your leaders. No, he doesn't say any of that. What does he say about them? He says that they have a long-standing track record of serving others. Not that they're the most gifted. Not that they're the most powerful. Best speakers. Nicest. No, he says that they have a track record of self-sacrificial service. You see, the kingdom of Jesus is an upside down kingdom where pastors' phones ring in the middle of the services. Remember that thing about reputation and ego like two minutes ago? That. Why is my ringer on? All of these uh, people that Paul mentions have a long-standing track record of service because the kingdom of God operates upside down. You see, our world says that those who take life by the horns, that those who work hard to advance themselves, those are the ones who are powerful. 
See, we define power by being able to set our own direction and have people do what we want. I mean, let's be honest, how many times have you thought, if everybody would just do what I told them to, the world would be a better place, right? Most of us firmly believe that if everybody would just do what we told you, the world would be a better place. The problem is what you think I should do and what I think I should do are totally different, right? I think that you should fill in the blank do the things that most make me happy. And you think the same about me. And we think that we get ahead in life by being more powerful. By being able to exert our will over others. Let's think about this in, in terms of arguments that you have with your friends and your family. More often than not, what you really are arguing about is who gets to be right. This is why husbands and wives argue about how to use toothpaste. Right? Do you, do you squeeze from the top? Or do you squeeze willy-nilly from the middle? Right? The answer is from the top. We're not animals. And so what happens is, we, we begin to have these arguments about things like toothpaste. But the arguments aren't really about the toothpaste, are they? The arguments aren't really about how to load the dishwasher. At the end of the day, most of the time, these arguments are about power. And what Paul says is that the church, the kingdom of God, is not a place that power should reign in. It's a place where service should reign where self-sacrificially loving someone else by doing something that makes you uncomfortable is the sign and mark of leadership and love. Which means that it's loving for you to load the dishwasher in a way that seems counterintuitive to you. Because you're loving someone else. Which means it's loving for you not to think that you know best all the time. to love and serve others. And that's really hard. That's hard for me. Because I think I know best. I don't, want, I, don't want to, I don't want to do what you tell me. And yet the way that love transforms us is just like it did these leaders at Corinth. By changing us from the people that get the most power we can, that try to shape the world into the image that we think it should be as best that we can, of trying to make our kids do exactly what we want, of being able to control everything in our life, our diet, our workout regimen, of being able to be in control of everything that everyone else does around us. If we could just do that, no, Paul says no. The way that love transforms us is instead of trying to grab power wherever we can get it, we start looking for ways to serve other people. Instead of what's going to advance my agenda, I see how I can serve you and advance your agenda. How I can serve God and advance His agenda. See, this is tough. Because most of us, at the end of the day, care more about our wealth and financial security our reputation and what God and what others think of us 
what kind of power and control we have in situations. We think of those things first. At the end of the day, when asked, why do you do the things that you do? What are the motivations for your actions? More often than not, in my heart, pretty sure it's true in yours, that my motivations are more about wealth and advancing my reputation and giving myself power and control than they are anything about Jesus. And so Paul closes out and says, if anyone doesn't love Jesus, let him be accursed. And so most of us stand dead to rights in the middle of the crosshairs because of the way that our hearts are so quick to go elsewhere. The way that our hearts are so quick, the way that our motivations point us not towards Jesus, not towards love, but point us towards ourselves. But the beauty of this passage is not just the way that it shows us that love transforms us, but the way that it points us to Jesus. The way that Jesus is the one who took the curse for us. You see, if we are Christians, the beautiful good news of Jesus, the truth and goodness and beauty of what the cross and resurrection was all about is this, that Jesus was taking the curse on your behalf. The curse that you deserve for the way that your motivations are more often than not about wealth, your reputation, and your power and control. The way Jesus took even the motivation on himself. The Old Testament throughout it said, Cursed is anybody who hung on a tree. And so the only man who ever lived a perfect life, Jesus, who should have been eternally blessed, took the curse that you deserve. And that I deserve. Onto his own shoulders. And bore it on the cross. And so Paul doesn't just end with this, now go love people. He says, no, the way that we are transformed is not by working harder. It's not by getting up the nerve to put an extra zero on that check. No, the way that we, the way that we get closer to Jesus is not by fighting through the power and saying a Jesus thing to somebody. No, the way that we are changed and grow is by the grace of Jesus. By realizing that we don't have it together. That we are in need of someone else. That we do continually to act like those who are accursed. And Jesus says, I have taken the curse for you. I have borne the curse for you. And I am giving you that sort of love. The sort of love that you can't repay. The sort of love that you don't deserve. That's the sort of love that Jesus shows to us. And the way that the Bible talks about that love is with the word grace, which is the the flavor that Paul leaves at the end of this passage. You see, at the end of the day, as we read through 1 Corinthians as a whole, as we read through this chapter as a part, what we find is that it exposes the way that your heart and mind love so many other things besides Jesus. And Jesus says, I know you do, but the good news is that my grace covers that. If you are trusting in me, even though you keep acting like this, the grace of God again and again comes to you. That's that's what's so scandalous about grace. That's what's so uncomfortable about grace. Whenever I say that Jesus' grace will continue to love you even if you keep messing up, a lot of us, especially those of us who have been in the church for a long time, our brains go, yeah, but, uh, is there limits to that? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. There's got to be a stopping point. No. No, there's not. There's not. 
Because that's the kind of transformative love that Jesus shows to us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to point out that this is this is something that all of us, Christian, non-Christian, need to hear. Because this is where Jesus comes to you and offers you something that is unique. That is that self-sacrificial, unmerited, unpaid, backable love. For some of you, this may be the chance to experience that for the first time. But for others of us, we need to look at this passage and not just see where we have failed, not just see how Jesus has taken that failure away from us, begin to see how Jesus can transform us. Transform the way that we interact with all of the things that we have. What's your relationship with your checkbook like? Well, with your online bank statement, because very few people in this room have physical checkbooks anymore. What's your relationship with that like? What's your relationship with your house? Do you hold on tightly to the stuff that you have? How can Jesus begin to transform you through His love to something new? To a new way of letting go of all that you have and sharing with others. With a new way of letting go of your ego, of your reputation, of your need to be right, of your need to control. How is Jesus going to transform you? Me? Let's pray and trust that He will.